<clears throat> if it's God's will, how many times have either you have said that or have heard that? In our circles, we hear it all the time, right? If it's God's will. The title of the passage that I'm, the title of the message I'm going to be giving you today is God's will be done. I want to talk about God's will and what part we play in it. I've chosen the passage we will be studying and we'll share it with you, share it with what it is in a few minutes. But before I do that, I want to start out by saying this. I love food. Can you tell? Can you tell? I love food. My absolute favorite cuisine is Cajun, but Mexican food is a very close second. Yeah, Mexico. I agree. What I love to do, there's choices, right? I can go sit down in a Mexican restaurant or I can come take it home. I like to go to the restaurant and sit down in a Mexican place specifically. You know why? Because they give you free food. Every single sit-down Mexican restaurant gives you free food. What do they what do they give you? What do the Mexican restaurants give you before you even order? Chips. chips and salsa every single time. And how much chips and salsa can you have? Infinite. As much as you want. It's all you can eat. When you go to a Mexican restaurant, it's an all-you-can-eat place, isn't it? Yep. I mean, it's an all-you-can-eat place at the Mexican restaurants. It's awesome. Have you? Has anybody here ever walked away from a sit-down meal at a Mexican restaurant and said, you know what, I'm still a little hungry? Yeah. Unless you're warped and don't actually <laughs> like Mexican food then no chance, right? You're walking out of there stuffed. You could technically go into a Mexican restaurant and order a side of jalapenos and eat all the chips and salsa you want, right? I usually walk out of a Mexican restaurant hurt because I've eaten so much, literally hurting, right? Another cuisine that gives free food, albeit not even close to as much as Mexican, is Chinese. Right? They do give you free food at Chinese places. And what, what do they give you? At the end of the meal, what do they give you? A fortune cookie, right? They're gonna, I didn't pay for that fortune cookie. They're going to give me a fortune cookie. Now, these almost tasteless, six and a half calorie dessert cookie are not usually sought after because they are such a delicious food, right? How many of you here just crave fortune cookies for dessert? There's like three? Yeah, that's what I thought, right? Why do most people even pick them up when they're when they're passed out at the end of the meal? They're free. They're free. <laughs> <laughs> why else? Why do most people why do people pick them up? Because you want to read the stinking fortune, right? You want to know what it says in there. Yeah. Agreed? Yeah. You pick up you, you get the fortune cookie. I never eat the fortune cookie. Never. I just want to get the fortune. What is the fortune? Right? Now listen, fortune cookies really miff me, okay? They really stick it to me. Ask my wife, I really do get upset about this. I'm not kidding, I get upset about this. You're upset about this? I know, I get upset about a lot of things, but I really, this is one of them. This is one of them. When I was your age, about 35 years ago, <laughs> that petrifying thought, Fortune cookies were still not delicious, okay? They've never been delicious. But they were fun because inside was that fortune. And although I didn't and still don't obviously think that, you know, fortunes come true because of what you get in that fortune cookie, it's always fun to compare your fortune with the rest of your family's fortune, right? Who can get the best fortune, right? The fortunes back then might have read, you're going to meet somebody special this week. Or... One of your endeavors will be especially productive this month. Or be on the lookout for someone you haven't seen in quite some time. All fun fortunes, right? Predicting my future, right? Fortunes predict the future. Have any of you looked inside of a fortune cookie today? Or, or even lately? I mean, from any Chinese restaurant, I've been to lots. And the, fortune, the fortunes are all the same. They still give out the fortune cookies, but the fortune inside is anything but a fortune. The new fortunes say things like, it's amazing how much good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. Did that predict anything? <laughs> or it might say, it's better to be alone sometimes 
true, but that's not a fortune, right? It's not foretelling anything. Or another one might say, our deeds determine us as much as we determine our deeds. That's good and all, right? But how are any of those predicting my future? Those aren't fortunes, right? They should change the name of fortune cookies to proverb cookies, right? They should. That's what they're, they're actually proverbs. They're not fortunes. What is a proverb? A proverb is simply, it's something that states a general truth or a piece of advice. All those things that they do now, they're little proverbs. I used to be excited to open a fortune cookie and see my fortune. Now when I'm in the restaurant and open the cookie, because I still can't resist opening it, even though I'm miffed about it and I know it's not going to be a fortune, I read that tiny piece of paper that they call a fortune, I hold the paper up over my head and announce to the restaurant, not a fortune. (laughs) And then I take my wife's fortune cookie, I read her fortune, hold it up over my head and announce what you get again. Not a fortune. I actually do this. <laughs> you should ask her. Steph, what do I do in a, in a, in a grocery store when we get separated? She's slowly getting less and less embarrassed by me as time goes by. I do squeal to get, because I can't find her, and so I just have to start squealing, and she comes to me. Anyway, while proverbs are not fortunes, they can still be fun. The ones that I quoted earlier are good pieces of advice. They're catchy sayings that tell some semblance of a truth about life. I have absolutely no idea who wrote them, but they're, for the most part, decent, truthful phrases. The passage I'm going to go through today comes from the book of Proverbs, which was written by likely the wisest man ever to walk the earth, besides Jesus. You remember that Solomon asked God for wisdom, and God delivered. The Proverbs in Proverbs aren't just catchy phrases that portray a modicum of truth. These are written by the wisest man to walk the earth, who was inspired by God when he wrote them, to drop truth bombs on everybody who reads them. Our passage today is a well-known one, one you've probably memorized in the past. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I too have memorized this verse and never realized how applicable it is to our relationship with God and his will for us. Before I dig into these verses, we need to talk about God's will and what a difficult topic it is. What do I mean when I say God's will? God's will is what God wants to happen, what he directs to happen, what he uses to fulfill his purposes. Well, what are his purposes? Has he told us? Does God reveal his will to us in a way that makes it perfectly clear what we should do all the time? Right, right? This is a tough, tough, tough topic. Guess what? He kind of does. There are two aspects to God's will. There's God's decreed will and his moral will. Decreed will being the secret will that he doesn't, doesn't, doesn't tell us, and God's moral will, which is the ones that he does reveal to us. See, God has revealed many things that we, as Christians, are specifically to do, and all of them lead to the goal of glorifying him. He has clearly given us the Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule, etc. This is God's moral will. He has revealed this to us that we, that we know that he wants us to do. We can be assured that he does not want us to lie, steal, murder, etc. We know that he wants us to honor our parents and refrain from sexual immorality. We know that he wants us to love him with all our, heart, all of our hearts, and to treat others the way we want to be treated. He told us these things in his word. He revealed them to us. We know God's will for us is to follow these commands. And Christians 
will continually get better and better at following them because the Lord is sanctifying his children. What does sanctify mean? That we will be becoming more like Christ. The other part of his will, his decreed will, the part that he does not reveal to us, is the part that is confusing. Should I buy a new car or a used one? Should I live in an apartment or a condo? Should I go to school today using the freeway or the back roads? Should I have eggs for breakfast or yogurt? Are these things important? Some of them. Does God have a plan for us? Absolutely. Does he audibly speak to us to let us know which is the right decision? He hasn't spoken to me. Does he tap on your shoulder to give us direction when we are not choosing the right direction? Does he ring a bell when we ask him a yes or no question and the answer is yes? Does God reveal his secret will to us the way we want him to? He doesn't answer us like a magic eight ball. You know the toy that answers yes or no questions? Wouldn't you like to really do that? Right? What should I do? Should I do this? Seems like you should. Right? <laughs> so what do we do? Should we pray diligently over what we should eat for breakfast? Should we drop everything and pull over the car and pray earnestly to decide whether to take the freeway or the back roads to work or school? I'm not saying you shouldn't be praying all the time, but God is going to but is God going to clearly tell you what to do for every little time you ask him? Very doubtful. In fact, he's yet to do that once in my lifetime. I've never yet heard his voice or feel the tap or hear the bell. So what do we do then when we want God's help to make a decision? What do we do when we have a big decision to make and want to know what God wants? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? To find out what God wants in our lives? Aren't we supposed to be doing God's work in the way God wants us to do it? Well, how can we possibly know what exactly that is if God won't talk to us? Won't give us clear answers? The decision as to whether we live in Tennessee or California needs to be made. And doesn't it sound logical that only one of them can exactly be what God wants? We, the Duncans, just dealt with this exact situation. I was offered a principal position in Knoxville, Tennessee, not two months ago. We had a major decision to make between beautiful, calm, quiet, free America, Tennessee, or the gross, apathetic, illogical, twisted California. It's pretty obvious what we chose. But was it what God wanted for the Duncans? Russell, how do you know? How do I know? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 will help us with this conundrum. Let me read again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. In these verses, can you hear the four verbs? Trust, lean, acknowledge, and will make straight. Three of them are things that we do, and the last one is what God does. The first part of the first verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust. I've talked about trust a lot when I speak in front of you guys, and you know I always compare the word trust with the word believe. How do you know the difference between when you simply believe something and when you trust something? Belief happens in your head. Belief is just when you know something. Things like, I know there's youth group tonight. I know mailmen come to pick up and drop off the mail every day, etc. Trust puts action into your belief to show it, not just think it. See, you guys are all too young. Most of your homeschoolers probably don't even know what a real handwritten letter is, right? Let me explain what a letter is to you, okay? Do I need to do that? Do you guys know what a letter is? Okay. No. All right. All right. I'm going to assume that you guys do. Okay. I'm just going to assume you do. But I never know how much you homeschoolers know, so I have to kind of get a gauge. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I believe that when I put a letter in the mail and make sure there's the right postage and it's addressed properly, 
It will get to its correct destinations. And I use the U.S. mail a lot. However, let's just say that I need to write a check to Luke for $100,000 for some strange reason, right? And he's not a drug dealer. <laughs> just say that I need to give him $100,000. I can tell you one thing. I'm not going to mail it. Why? Because I don't really trust the U.S. mail, right? It might get lost. It might get stolen. Am I willing to take that risk? I think I'll just hand it to him, right? I don't trust the U.S. mail when push comes to shove. Another way to decipher the difference between trust and belief could be this. Ask yourself if you are willing to bet on it, right? How many times do you make a claim about something to your friends and they say, no way, that's not true. And you say, no, no, it really is. And they say, want to bet? I'll bet you 20 bucks. Oh, um, yeah, no, I don't want to bet on it, but I still think it's true, right? You weren't willing to possibly lose something of value over what you believed. If you trusted what you believed, shouldn't you be willing to bet on it? There's some action behind your belief. Now, I'm aware that some of you don't believe in betting with each other, and that's okay. But I do want to point out that every single person who has ever lived bets on the most important thing in their whole life. The thing we all bet on is what we all put our faith in. Let's look at the first part of verse 5 again. What, or should I say who, does Solomon say we should trust? Trust in the Lord. See, if you choose to trust in God and, and Jesus Christ, you are betting your future eternity that what God says is true. Your life as a Christian looks different because you're not, you not only believe Christ, you live differently as a result. You deny yourself the sinful pleasures of this world. You are the salt. You are the light. You trust God and are betting your eternity on it. However, if you choose not to follow Christ, you too are betting that you're right. You're betting that either there is no heaven and hell, or that simply because you're a good person, you automatically go to heaven. You're betting your entire eternity future on what you believe or don't believe. There's no way around it. You are betting whether you want to or not. You're betting on one side of Christ or the other. You can't not bet. Who or what we trust is of paramount importance. There are many people in this world who believe that all religions are ultimately the same. See, a lot of you may not know that. A lot of you guys, you come here and this is all you hear. There's a lot of people who believe that all religions kind of lead to the same place. All of them lead to heaven. And if you're sincere about whatever you believe, then you're good. You're going to, you're, you're going to make it. They believe that a Buddhist who believes in nirvana and a Jew, a Mormon and a Jehovah's Witness, someone who believes in reincarnation and somebody who believes in ancestor worship all end up in the same place if they're sincere in their own religious beliefs, whatever they believe. Don't be fooled by this. This is what the devil wants you to think. It's simply not a logical concept. Okay, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, try, I'm gonna tell you a story here and you, you need to kind of understand. Let's just say that I had a box here, all right? I have a little box here. And I go up to Robbie and say, Robbie, what do you think is in the box? Robbie says, I think there's a brand new super expensive gaming mouse in the box, right? Which I'm sure a lot of you would hope, right? He thinks there's a gaming mouse in the box. I go up to KK, what do you think's in the box? What do you believe's in the box? She says, I believe there's a kitten in the box, right? I go up to Alex, Alex I ask Alex, Alex, what do you think's in the box? Alex goes, I don't think there's anything in the box. I think you're just making all this up, right? Does what Robbie believe is in the box make that thing be in the box? Does what Kay, if Kay believes there's a kitten in the box, does that make a kitten be in the box? Alex says there's nothing. Because when Robbie looks in the box, is there a gaming mouse? When Kay looks in the box, is there a kitten? When Alex looks in the box, is there nothing? That's not logical. That doesn't make any sense, right? 
even if everybody who believed it was in the box was super sincere about it, does that make them right? Do you think Mormons, listen, do you think Mormons are any less sincere than we are? Do you think a devout Buddhist is any less reverent or sincere than Christians? Let me tell you, there are literally millions and millions, likely billions of people who sincerely believe entirely different things about where the earth comes from, who created it, and what happens when we die. Billions of people think differently. Everyone can't possibly be right. Just using simple logic, what, what, what is guaranteed to be true is that when we die, we're going to find out what's in the box. We're going to find out who won the bet. And if we're right, which we are, those that bet on the wrong side of Christ will spend eternity apart from God in hell. Christians have bet on Christ. We trust in the Lord, the creator of all, the sustainer of the universe, the one who sent his son to live the perfect life that we cannot possibly have lived, etc., etc., right? We believe all those things. Christians believe, in fact, they bet on the Lord, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit being in the box. How can we prove that we believe? How can we show trust? The next part of, the, uh, of that important first verse says that we should trust in the Lord. How? With all our heart, right? What in the world does it mean to trust with all of your heart? The temptation would be to think that we need to almost grunt all day long in every decision we make, both big and small. You know, like, I trust in God with what I'm about to, what I'm about to decide. You know, like, all my heart. See, that's not what God intends for us to do all day long. You can't go around grunting all the time. People are going to run away from you, right? Now, well, listen, we might pray like that sometimes over some major decisions, but we don't need to do that to trust him with all of our heart. You see, it's not so much the strength of our trust. It's the sincerity of it. Let me explain. Look, when you sat in the chair you're sitting in, did any one of you reinforce the chair with something before you sat down? Or did you just sit down, trusting it wouldn't collapse? Before you sat down, did you deeply ponder and grunt, oh, I hope this chair holds me up, that it wouldn't collapse? Of course not. You had 100% trust it would hold you up without all the exertion. You trusted the chair. You didn't strongly trust the chair. You just did it almost without thinking. You've done it many times, many times. And you sat there in the chair without any real thought. You did trust the chair would hold you up. You did it almost completely out of habit. This is like the daily routine of somebody who trusts God. They think about God a lot. They think about the things throughout their day, like what would God have me do? They practice self-control, love, patience, etc. Their normal day just shows trust in God. Mature Christians do it without thinking. It's become their routine. They are being sanctified, becoming more like Christ. Non-Christians trust in themselves or some other created thing. They don't believe God has saved them. So why would they routinely think about him, consult him, etc.? They wouldn't because they don't belong to him. They don't believe in him. For the Christian, it might seem easy to trust the Lord when life is easy, with few problems or cares, but that's not life. Sometimes we have worries or concerns or tragedies or problems. It's not as easy to trust in the Lord when you're hurting or are unsure, lose a loved one, or going through a relationship problems, etc. So using the chair illustration, imagine if I put that exact same chair you are sitting in right now on the edge of a cliff, on a, on a flat spot, but it's on the edge of a cliff. If the chair collapses, you're probably going to fall to your death. Right? Would you walk up there? It's the same chair you just sat in. Would you walk up there and just plop right down in the chair without hesitation? Would you make sure this time that the legs were stable? Would you give it a little shake? Maybe put some pressure on it before you sat down? Is it possible you wouldn't sit down in the chair at all? That would be a sign that you didn't really trust the chair, right? 
It's the exact, listen, it's the exact same chair you're all sitting in now, and yet none of you tested the chair for its stability before you came and sat down. When you came in here and sat down, all of you, when you did come in here and sit down, you did strongly trust the chair because you sat there without thinking. You showed your trust by sitting in the chair. Do you trust the Lord when things are hard? When things are messy? This is when God's love for us is the most helpful. Like Luke talked about a few weeks ago, as a Christian, God is the Almighty God. Don't get me wrong, He is the Almighty God. But as Christians, He's also our Daddy. Right? We can trust Him, especially when things are hard. That's when we need Him the most. That's when He wants to pour out His love onto us most. Do you think if you sat in that chair that's on the edge, on the cliff's edge a few times, you'd become less and less scared of it? Right? You probably would. Do you think after a hundred times of going up there and gingerly sitting in that chair that you might just start plopping into it every time you got up there? What if you watched other people just plop in the chair? Do you think you'd be more willing to just plop in it then after you watch somebody else do it? I know I'd feel a lot better if I'd sat in it a bunch of times or watched other people do it. Christians, watch your fellow Christians who trust the Lord. Watch how God sustains them and supports them through hard times in their lives. Watch how mature Christians trust the Lord in the hard times. Christians should glean from other Christians in this way. Learn from them. Learn to trust the Lord in all you do. The life of a Christian is not without pain. It's not without trouble. It's not without hardship. But God is faithful and will sustain you. You can trust him. You can trust him with all your heart in not only your daily routines, which seems easy, but also the difficult times. Do you show trust in the Lord through your lives, through both the easy and hard times you face? Verse 5 again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The second half of the verse says, and do not lean on your own understanding. What does it mean to lean on someone? Why do people lean on someone or something? Have you ever seen somebody walking with a cane? Why do they have a cane in the first place? What does somebody who needs a cane do every single step? They lean on the cane, right? They lean on the cane. They depend on the cane for help and support. More than leaning onto an object, you can also lean into someone. The verse says specifically not to lean on your own understanding. Well, what is our understanding? Our understanding is what we humans, what we as humans think we know. Human knowledge, human emotions, human logic, our own understanding. See, human understanding is flawed knowledge, flawed emotions, flawed logic. Knowing the difference between understanding between knowing human understanding and God's understanding is the rub. I'm going to tell you a story about something that happened at my house about a year ago. Um, At my house, you have to walk up about, I don't know, eight steps to get to my front landing before you walk in my door. The bottom of the steps is my driveway, my pavement. Um, And my mom and dad, my dad's 83, my mom's 80. Um, They were walking, they, they had come over to visit and they were leaving the our house, right? And so we're all at the front door. We're, we're saying goodbye. Oh, hey, great. Not glad you came. Love you guys. Whatever, right? My dad, he needs a little help as he's walking up and down stairs. He's 83. Um, and he has heart problems, etc. And he was leaning on my mom. He was, you know, my mom is 80 and she's about half his size. Um, and he was just leaning on her. About three steps from the bottom, he stumbles. And they both go down, all the way to the driveway. Um, You know, my dad, he comes up bloody. My mom comes up bruised. Um, They're both okay, right? I mean, it wasn't really bad, but it was scary, right? My dad had leaned on what he thought would be able to stabilize him. He was wrong. They both fell. Neither were stable. They needed a secure rail. I need to put a rail up at my house, by the way. I mean, that's for sure. I mean, I need to put a rail up. My dad put his trust in what he thought would be able would be stable enough to help him down the stairs. He put his trust in a human. 
Now listen, while that's not a perfect example, it does bring us back to our passage. Christians need to put their trust in that the only secure thing in this universe, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, the Lord. It's important to note that one of the major differences between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians know that they're unstable without the Lord. They know they need a rail. Their rail, God, is the most secure, most stable thing in the universe because he created the universe and loves them. Humans on their own might think that we know best, but to put it simply, we don't. Here's the difference. Non-Christians don't even know that they're unstable. They go through life believing, trusting that they know best, that they're in control of the direction of their lives. Did you know that in deep, in deep economic recessions, there's no recession, is a recession is like when people lose their jobs, the economy goes down the toilet, people don't have money, right? When in deep economic recessions, suicides go up. Why? People put their trust in their bank accounts, their families, their own accomplishments. These things are not stable. And when they are taken from people, they can't handle it. They put their trust in the world as opposed to God. This is why Christians should be leaning into Christ, the only secure thing in this whole universe. We don't know what's best but we know that God does. God's knowledge is perfect. God's reasoning is perfect. We can trust that the Lord and his will is perfect. God does things for reasons we do not always understand. Actually, not only can we not see God's reasoning most of the time, we can't see it almost all of the time. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, and you know these verses too, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. He is so far above us. He knows everything. And we need to trust that God is just a bit smarter and more knowledgeable than we are. Does God promise to explain why things happen? Does God owe us an explanation? There's a rather infamous, influential prophet in the Bible who thought that he knew better than God. He thought he would save God from making a bad decision. Luke and I have had an inside joke about this for the past few years, about the parallels of this guy and myself. It's why I'm wearing this shirt tonight. Who am I talking about? Jonah, right? The brief story of Jonah, for those of you who haven't seen the Veggie Tale, right? I know, it's a good one. It's one of the better ones. I get it, but I will recount it anyway, briefly. Jonah was told by God to go and tell the Assyrians, Nineveh, to repent or you're going to be destroyed, Right? That sounds like wrathful, that sounds like good old wrathful God, right? That God's going to go and wipe them out. But you know what Jonah heard? Jonah heard, go tell them that if they don't do this, that God will do that. Which implies that if they do repent, then they're good. Jonah couldn't handle it. Jonah's like, no, these guys deserve punishment. These guys deserve the wrath of God. I'm not going over there and giving them an ultimatum. They might choose God. And that would be unacceptable to Jonah, right? So what happens? Jonah decides to take matters into his own hands. He's going to thwart God's will, right? He's going to change what God decreed to happen. What ends up happening to Jonah? He gets swallowed by a whale or a giant fish for three days. I can only imagine that for those three days, and I mean all three days of it, that Jonah's like, could you please kill me, God? He's in the middle of a whale. Right? Eventually, the whale spits him out. God says, Jonah, I want you to go tell the Assyrians. Right? Jonah says, fine. He goes and tells the Assyrians, and guess what happens? They repent. 
and God saves them, right? Jonah knew that the Assyrians deserved God's wrath. How did that work out for Jonah? Was he successful in thwarting God's will, God's plan? Jonah definitely was leaning on his own understanding, and that got him swallowed by a whale for three days. Guess what? God's decreed will was done in spite of Jonah's rebellion. It happened in spite of Jonah. God's will was going to be done with or without Jonah. God just chose to use Jonah anyway, probably to teach Jonah a lesson. We can trust God's plan for us is exactly what it's supposed to be. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. Verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him. What does Solomon mean when he says your ways? It's simply what we do. Does he mean only the big things that we do? No. Everything we do, all of our ways. Like I said before, our routines, our daily lives, the normal days, the exciting days, the sad or depressing days, the days we make no major decisions and the days we make massive life-altering decisions, in everything we do, we need to acknowledge him. What does acknowledge mean? What does it mean to acknowledge someone? One commentator uses the word know instead of know, instead of acknowledge. I'll give you an example. When I walk into this room each Wednesday night at exactly 6.30, because I would never walk in even one minute earlier, if you know anything about me, right? I immediately look around the room for Luke. I need to talk to him at some point before the games are over to talk about the announcements and because he's my friend. Once I see him from across the room and we make eye contact, we're going to give each other the head bob, you know? Right? You know the head bob. You give it to each other. You know what I'm talking about. When he gives me the head bob back, that is acknowledging me. He knows me, and he let me know that he knows that I'm here. Right? He acknowledged me. Let's say that I can't get his attention, and he doesn't see me from across the room. I would probably walk up to him and put my hand on his shoulder, and when he sees me, he'd probably say, hey. Right? Hey. Even if he's in the middle of a conversation with somebody else, he let me know that he knows that I'm there. He acknowledged me, right? The definition of acknowledge is to accept or admit the existence of something. I don't know if Luke accepts that I'm here in the building, but he is admitting it, right? To acknowledge God means to act like you believe. Not only that he is there, which he is, but also to believe in him, in all you do. Believe that he loves you and wants what's best for you. The big things, the little things. Acknowledging him means to know he is with you, watching you. He's beside you. That what you do matters because God is right there. The opposite of the word acknowledge is to, well, imagine when I walked in the room, right, to acknowledge Luke, and I give him, he catches eye contact with me, and I give him the head bob, and he just kind of, and then just looks away. Right? Let's assume that he didn't see me because he wouldn't be that rude, right? Right? So I walk up to him, put my hand on his shoulder, right? And, hey, and I say, hey, and he looks at me and goes, and then just walks away, <laughs> right? He's ignoring me. He's totally dogging me, right? The opposite of acknowledge is to ignore. Christians acknowledge God in their lives. They live their lives knowing that God exists and is, and is someone that they should lean on daily. Non-Christians ignore God. They either don't believe he exists or they just don't think God is involved in their lives. They might have a warped idea of who God is and do what they want. Believing God does not have a justice side of his character. That would be a mistake. They don't acknowledge God in any decisions that they make. Why would they? They don't believe him. They don't believe in him. Have any of you guys ever heard of the unpardonable sin? Ever heard of that? Ever heard that term before, the unpardonable sin? I won't get too deeply into it, but there is a sin that God cannot and will not forgive you of. Doesn't that sound like anti-everything you know about the gospel? Right? 
Well, there is a sin. It's unpardonable. And here it is. The unpardonable sin. Living your whole life as if God was not there. Ignoring what he has done for you through Jesus Christ. Ignoring that you were created by God to fulfill his purposes. Ignoring God is the unpardonable sin. Jesus did not die for those who will never acknowledge and accept him. Those that never accept or acknowledge God will end up in hell for eternity. Now to the good part. The second half of verse 6. What does Solomon say will happen if we follow our three verbs? Trust in the Lord. Don't lean on our own understanding, which implies that we lean on God and acknowledge God in our lives. He will make straight our paths. The second half of verse 6 definitely sounds like Yoda wrote it, doesn't it? (laughs) Right? He will make straight your paths. Hungry are we? A Twinkie I will get for you? Right? I mean, it sounds like Yoda. He will make straight your paths? Definitely funky. The important thing about this verse is that is the part that God does the making. Notice it doesn't say, in all our ways acknowledge him and you will choose to walk a straight path. Nope, nope. It says that he will make your, straight, your path straight. In other words, he will make sure you're on the right track. He will make sure you are being coming sanctified. He will make sure you are in his will. God orchestrates this. He does this. Non-Christians, listen, non-Christians are offended at the thought that someone or something else might be in control of their lives. I think it's a huge blessing that God is the one who orchestrates his will and that I am not in control of my life. So, When is God going to tell me whether or not I should move to Tennessee? When is he going to tell me what car to buy? When is he going to tell me what college to go to? Or what job to take? Or what wife to choose? Where's all this written down? This is God's decreed will, his secret will. God knows what is going to happen, but he likely isn't going to tell us clearly what that is. Uh, right? Uh. Don't you just wish God would tell you? I know I do. But here's the thing. Here's the beauty of these verses. The verses give us direction to do three things. What are the three verbs? Trust, lean, and acknowledge, right? Which we will likely do a crappy job because we're just sinful humans. However, as a Christian, we will be getting better and better at doing these three as we are more sanctified, which is becoming more like Christ. You should all have word down there where it says being sanctified. That means becoming like Christ, right? What does it say is the result of us doing them? God. God will make our paths straight. Do you think God knows what we're supposed to do? Do you think God knows what's best for us? Do you think God has a plan? Do you think God would be surprised by whatever decision we make? He won't. He knew that we would choose. He knew what we would choose before we even knew it. It's all part of God's plan for us. The mystery of all this, however, is if God knows exactly what we're going to do before we do it, aren't we just robots doing exactly what God wants us to do? Right? Listen, Luke is in Romans 8 right now, and enjoy this. It really is the best one, right? It really is. Just wait for Romans 9. The mystery of the, listen, the mystery of the relationship between God knowing what we're going to do and using what he knows we're going to do to fulfill his will, even if it's sinful, while at the same time explaining that we are responsible for all of our actions and will account for them when we die before Almighty God, is a mystery. Right? How can it be both? It seems as though we don't have any choice but to do what God wants us to do since he knows exactly what we're going to do before we do it. Yet Paul tells us clearly in Romans 9 that we are responsible for everything we do. We're accountable for all of our actions and one day we will stand before Almighty God and give an account for every action that we took. 
the best way for me to try to explain this in a way that makes sense. Truly, uh, since it truly is almost impossible for us as finite human beings to understand, is to ask and answer this question. Do we choose to believe in God, or does God choose for us to believe? Which one is it? Are Christians Christians because they chose to believe in what Jesus did for for us? Or is it because God chose us and had our names written in the book of life before time began? Here's how Pastor Tony explained it to me in DTP. There's an arch that Christians walk through when they're invited to come to heaven, okay? When you, when you, when you die and you go to heaven, there's a big, huge arch you have to walk through. From, from the earth side, from the human side, it reads, I chose to believe in Jesus and what he did for me on that cross. I chose, right? As I walk through the arch and under the arch and into heaven, from the other side, from heaven's side... The inscription, and you look back, you look back at the arch, right? Same arch. The inscription reads, chosen by God before time. God chooses us, and yet we still freely choose. Same arch, different inscriptions, both true. We choose, God chose us, right? God chooses us, and yet we are responsible to choose. Our actions, while known beforehand by God, are still our actions, and we are responsible for them. Christians who are trusting, leaning on, and acknowledging God are in God's will, regardless of what we do. Whatever we do, God is not surprised. In fact, he will use that for his glory. What a concept. If we choose to live in awesome, peaceful, definitely less pagan Tennessee, God knew that we would. In fact, it's part of his will that we would do it. And yet if we choose to stay in the yucky, expensive, disgusting, immoral, ungodly, illogical, nanny state of California, God knew we would do that too. In fact, it would have been part of his will that we would do it. So was one choice in God's will and the other out of God's will? No. As Christians who trust, lean on God and acknowledge him in our lives, he will make make straight our paths, right? In other words... What we choose to do is in God's will. He planned it all along. We couldn't know that. But what we do know is that when we are in Christ, seeking to serve Christ, whatever we do is in God's will. What about the sins that Christians commit? Are they part of God's will? When we sin, can God use that for his glory? If you had come to my TYG Sunday School earlier this year, we might be starting it up again in September, so come to Sunday School. If you would have been there, you would have learned about the lineage of Israel from Abraham to Christ, all 41 generations. And you know what? One of those ancestors of Jesus is David and Bathsheba. And and as you know, the beginning of their relationship was one of the most heinous sins I could think of, right? God used their relationship to be a part of Jesus Christ's line, right? What about the story of Joseph, right? What did Joseph's brothers do, right? What did Joseph's brothers do? They sold him into slavery. I can't think of a more heinous sin than that. And yet, what does Joseph say about it when he had the opportunity to exact revenge or to mete out justice to his horrendous brothers? You've all heard it. What does Genesis 50, 20 say? As for you, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this very result. God used the sins of Joseph's brothers to bring Joseph into the position of second in command of all of Egypt. The whole story of the exodus of the Israelites stems from the fact that Joseph brought his family into Egypt. God used the sins of his brothers to fulfill his purposes. No human could ever have foreseen this. So what does, that, what does that exactly mean for us? When we sin, God uses it? When we sin, God knew we would, and he'll use that as part of his will? Yeah. And yet, we are still responsible for our actions, we still choose to sin, and are accountable for them. I'm almost done. 
I want to make something very, very clear. Christians are adopted sons and daughters of the Almighty God. Nothing, and I mean nothing you do, will change that. If you recognize that you're a sinner and believe you have offended the creator and sustainer of the universe and have put your faith in the Lord, believing that Jesus, who is God, came to earth and lived the perfect life that you could never live, sacrificed himself on that cross to atone for the sins of his children, and rose again on the third day, defeating death, and now sits at the right hand of God and will intercede for us before God when we die, you are in God's will. Your name is written in the book of life. Nothing, and I mean nothing you can do, can change your status as one of God's chosen, chosen one of his children. You will see him in heaven one day. For the non-Christians, you do not trust God. You do lean on your own understanding. You don't acknowledge him. And guess what? Your path is straight. Just not towards Christ. Not towards glory. Rather, your path is straight towards hell. While God is not surprised by anything you do and will use whatever you do for his glory, you are not his child. You are not promised anything but eternity in hell, which is the most tragic thing I can think of. If you haven't professed Christ, if you're teetering on the edge, please don't wait any longer to trust God. Talk to one of us about it. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Can we thwart God's will? Rest assured that whatever you do, whether a Christian or non-Christian, it's all part of God's plan. God's will will be done. The only thing you need to worry about is whether your destination within God's will is with him or apart from him for eternity. Let me pray. Your only Father, I thank you for this youth group, Lord. I thank you for all these students and young people that are here. I pray that they would acknowledge you in all that they do, that they would trust in you, that they would lean on you, and that they would remember your promise to make their path straight. I pray for the non-Christians in here, Lord, that you would draw them to you, that you would remind them, that you would open their eyes, that you would wake them from, from, from death. In Jesus' name, amen.